Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Welcome, listeners, to The Editor's Desk, our regular First Things podcast, where we talk to authors who are publishing recent issues of First Things magazine. And I have with me Erica Bakiaki, who is going to talk about her April 2023 article, Sex Realist Feminism. Erica is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy, and she's also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. Massachusetts. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thanks so much for having me, Rusty. I love the way you set this up, taking us back to Plato and Aristotle. So help the, help the listeners here. What does Plato get right? <laughs> what does Plato <laughs> get right? Right. So, so obviously the piece is philosophical, historical, legal, but what I tried to do is show that Plato and Aristotle get something wrong and they get something right. And what they got wrong has been sort of of great consequence, I think, to understanding women. And what they got right is kind of a way out. So Plato, I think, gets very right the idea of human beings. And I think he's, you know, includes women in this. We can talk about that a bit. <laughs> but that, you know, they're ordered toward excellence. So excellences of soul. And that excellences of soul are really where we find human excellence. And so he sees that, you know, different, you know, status is, is won by those excellence of of soul, which he, you know, sees obviously in the guardians, especially, and he welcomes women into joining men as guardians, as this kind of elite class in the Republic. You get philosopher queens as well as philosopher kings. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. Right. And, you know, I should, I didn't, I didn't figure, I couldn't figure out how to really parenthetically note this in the piece, but there are those who, you know, wonder how serious Plato was about this. Arlene Saxonhaus, who I really, she's a political theorist, really enjoy and learn a lot from her, wonders in the Republic how seriously Plato really takes his suggestion that women and men kind of have, you know, these equally potentially noble souls and that there's some laughter and derision around this suggestion by Socrates. So that's sort of to put it to the side. I think the reason why I wanted to take it seriously is because Aristotle seems to take, you know, how Plato works this all out seriously and has a different solution for 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 men and women. Well, but I mean, it's certainly the case that Plato, he I mean, he's a more of a dualist to use that loaded terminology. And so the rational soul is the be all and end all. And he, when men and women both have rational souls, so therefore men men and women are both capable of the perfection of their rational souls. But this differs, you say from, well, what does Plato get wrong then? I guess he gets wrong the dualism. The dualism, right. And so how does he solve the problem of the fact that men and women are are asymmetrically, you know, have have these really significant 
consequences with regard to reproduction. And both deal with this, but they deal it uh, deal with it very differently. And so I think it's helpful, I mean, uh, you know, that that in the Republic, though, yes, he elevates these, you know, the excellences of soul, he he talks about sexual difference in this very superficial way. He even kind of compares it to the differences between bald and long-haired men. And so he talks about... <laughs> it's as inconsequential, in yeah, other words. Yeah, right, right. I mean, and he does, you know, he certainly says, you know, males mount and, you know, females bear the offspring. But really, apart from that, it's just this kind of superficial difference. And the reason he can say that, and this is what I think he really gets wrong, and what I then, you know, jump forward later to talk about is what modern feminism kind of follows him in and gets wrong, too, is that... The way he wants to help women, these elite women, achieve this parity of of excellence kind of in their work, in whatever domain they can work in, is by what what Socrates says is an easygoing kind of childbearing. And it really, you know, if you read the text quite closely, (laughs) you know, what is he doing? Well, first of all... It sounds like the ideal thing would be that, you know, the guardian women would have surrogates. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that right? Which is happening now. It's not... That's right. I mean, and that's why there's so much in this text, if we read it really closely, you know, that not only, I mean, he doesn't, there's no surrogates then, because that's something I'm sure. But I mean, the children are whipped away and cared for by, you know, lower class governesses. And what's fascinating, too, is that those children who aren't kind of of, of the best quality are really going to be euthanized. I mean, that's it. Euthanized is not directly in the text, but they're but they're um, going to be kind of taken out. And so, what do you have? You have children not raised by their own mothers, and euthan you know infanticide for the good of the city, right? And so that kind of equality that's necessary for the city and for this kind of freedom and however the city is is really to the detriment of the women and their children and the family. And so, uh, and this is, you know, a very platonic theme, right? It's that justice in the city takes precedence over, over the family, the good of the family. So Plato gets equality between men and women right, but what he gets wrong is, well, he, 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 what, what he gets wrong is he completely Gloss, not doesn't just uh, deny that he doesn't actually deny the difference between bodily difference between men and women, but his solution is to effectively provide no room whatsoever for that bodily difference to make a difference in the just perfectly just city. And you and you think that modern feminism has tilted too much in that direction. That's right. I mean, I think it's clear that the solution is similar, right? So this reproductive asymmetry is kind of the problem and that the solution has to be a political one, right? And it's found in, you know, kind of whipping children away, especially elite women. I mean, make no mistake, this is all elite women we're talking about. So the children are to be cared for by other women. And that in this time, it's, you know, abortion because it's obviously become become safer than it was in Plato's time for sure. But, you know, infanticide, abortion, um, similar kinds of acts, right? And so that's what's necessary for sexual equality. And so that's exactly the feminist commitment and argument today is if you want to have these rational souls, you know, in their equality as actually instantiated equally or, you know, achieving this parity in the workplace as citizens, et cetera, they'll need, will need this kind of big political solution that doesn't really you know, take seriously these differences in the way that, well, certainly Aristotle would have. And so I, th- I think 
you know, the other point I make later in the essay is that without, I think, knowing it, modern feminism, I mean, they rightly give great, they sort of foreground the rational capacities of women, which is what Plato did. And I think that's right on. But without knowing it, they're also just as dualistic as him. And, you know, in following the Platonic and then Cartesian tradition, they really don't see the bodies as, don't see human bodies as part and parcel of who we are as human beings, which I think Aristotle got very right. Spell that out. So how does yeah. Aristotle... Yeah, I mean, correct. He, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he 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 sees us, he's the uh, hylomorphism. That's right. That we're body soul composites and our bodies are not interchangeable, you know, platforms for our rational souls, but actually it's integral to who we are. So being a man and being a woman kind of makes a difference at the at a fundamental level. And women giving birth and raising children is an integral part of what it means to be a woman. That's right. Yeah, and fatherhood for being a man as well. So I think, yeah, right. So that's what he gets right. And it's a really fundamental distinction for him. And because of this deep integration between body and soul, he's going to then see how he regards the woman's body, female reproduction, is going to influence how he regards her rational soul, right? And so this is his mistake. It's not in the hylomorphism, which is very much, I think, right on and can be a real solution for us today in kind of getting us out of our Cartesian problem where we really discount the body. But his problem and whether, you know, Aristotle, Aristotelian or Aristotle scholars will sort of disagree about what where his problem is. Is it in the metaphysics or is it in the biology? I'm sort of lean toward more of the side of the biology that because he didn't understand how you know, reproduction worked, he certainly understood, and this I really like his language here, that the basic difference between men and women is that women reproduce inside themselves and men reproduce outside themselves. But because of more of the details of that biology, he saw the female as a deficient male. And in some sense that because of this, in some way, her rational capacity was also deficient and the way we see this, and again, we could argue about, and we could bring in Aristotle scholars to argue about how it is that this all ties together, but it's very much seen as a consequence in his politics where women only achieve kind of sort of a, a feminine excellence within the household and men can achieve their excellence, you know, in terms of flourishing and, 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 you know, working toward sort of virtuous lives, both inside and outside the household. And you see this, especially in his view that it's only male citizens who rule and are ruled in turn. Female citizens, you know, females are not welcome into that, that political citizenship. And so there is a consequence to regarding females as, you know, deficient males in Aristotle's whole scheme. I mean, one thing is that Aristotle is incredibly consistent. So this biological error he makes at the very base of his sort of, you could say, gender theory really ends up sort of redounding to an error all the way through. However, if you correct that era, error, it seems to me, which, you know, modern biology certainly has corrected that they're, that both the male and the female are, you know, contribute to reproduction. Then you can start to ask, well, what is it then if you could say with, you know, with Plato that women and men are both rational, but with Aristotle, we're sexually dimorphic. And in that, you know, kind of that we come in two bodies that both men and women have responsibilities in that act of reproduction. 
And I think, you know, women's are certainly have the disproportionate burden because we're the ones who carry children, but we're also disproportionately privileged by that, right? And so how is it that law can ensure that that there is sort of made that women, you know, there's, there's, as you, as you said before, I think very well, that room is made for that difference and that distinct and disproportionate burden in terms of pregnancy and caregiving, but that responsibility is really expected from men for, and fathers for that equal share in, in, you know, producing the child of the sexual union. I mean, as you I mean, the, the, the listeners should know that the this discussion of philosophy is against the background of uh, our anti-discrimination law, which you think, which you think is both good and bad uh, in the sense that it, we're back to sort of Plato, that our anti-discrimination law sort of drinks deeply at the well of this platonic notion that men and women have equal capacities for ex- for excellence with respect to their rational souls. But that that, that same anti-discrimination law, although it's, it's more complicated than that, that the tendency of modern feminism is to push that anti-discrimination law to the point where it denies the Aristotelian insight. Because so I guess you want to, your argument is we want both. We want a society that sees justice as providing oppor- opportunities equally to men and women with respect to the rational soul but also a just society for Aristotle has to acknowledge the embodied difference between men and women. And so how do we do that as a society is it seems to me was what you're kind of grappling with in this piece so that people can, and Aristotle and Plato, as you point out, they, they, the scholars can argue about the details, but I find it very useful as a way of setting up the Scylla and the Charybdis, the Scylla of, only equality with respect to the rational soul and the charybdis of, well, because men and women are different in their bodies, therefore, you know, they have to be, they have to be treated sort of differently across the board in our law from everything from, you know, whether or not, as you point out, you can be a lawyer or not, as it was in the 19th century. What, what, how do you, like, where do, where do you think that current, the current state of thinking about anti-discrimination where do you think it goes most wrong? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's helpful if it's okay to kind of set up why I think anti-discrimination law is even worth, when I say on the first page, it's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. That's um, good. Because good, I yes. think, yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at basic anti-discrimination law, especially in its historical emergence in the way that, I mean, I write a lot about this in my book, The Rights of Women, and there's a whole chapter devoted to this and the way that Polly Murray, who is a civil rights attorney, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, of course, we know (laughs) as the late justice, set this up as understanding that, you know, they both understood and very much, not even as concession, but as really a celebration that men and women have these biological differences, especially obviously in reproduction, and that maternity was something that should be very much celebrated. What they wanted to do, and, and not only maternity, but that there were biological differences that could also redound to or impact psychological differences. There was no sort of disagreement there. I mean, I think Ginsburg is actually pretty articulated on this, where she says, you know, there are discussions these days, and this is, she's talking, she's writing in the 1980s, where there were lots of discussions, you know, between uh, sort of debates about like sameness and difference in men and women, all that. And she says, I think, you know, 
there are many of these generalizations about, you know, women's nurture, men's aggression, all these sorts of things, which could be perfectly true, you know, for the most part. And I mean, this is actually a good Aristotelian insight, right? It's like, for the most part, we see this to be true. But how does that help me as a lawyer, as a judge, thinking about the particular individual I have in front of me? And I think that's a really good way of thinking about this is that at law requires us, I mean, a case is, is you know, adjudicating one person's particular, you know, the instance of their, in their life. And I think obviously you don't want to form laws around exceptions, but we also have to see that law allows us to be kind of nuanced in this way. And I think she did a good job of doing that. Now, of course, I show both in my book and in this article where I think this all goes very wrong. So let me just say one statement about where I think it's very much right. And that is that both Murray, who's kind of really an intellectual precursor to Ginsburg, who's more of sort of, you know, putting this stuff in, you know, her her arguments before the court, that there's an understanding that the court ought to distinguish on the one hand between laws and policies that are protective of pregnant women and the caregiving function of the family from those laws and policies which arbitrarily discriminate against individual men or women on the count of their sex. So what does that mean? I mean, even clearly in some of her later cases, the most famous, you know, United States versus Virginia, which is famously called the VMI case, the Virginia Military Academy case, even there, there's an understanding that you can't, that verse, that in race discrimination, it's always impermissible to, to distinguish between the races. But in sex discrimination, that's not the case. You can discriminate bet- between or distinguish between sexes. You just can't discriminate against the sexes and so the, or each individual sex. So that's, I think I'm getting a little bit in the weeds here, but that's really important. I mean, these sorts of nuances, especially when it comes to law, are very, very important. And so, as you mentioned, the you know, with regard to a woman, say, the very first case brought that she brought to the Supreme Court where the, you know, court unanimously decided that, you know, it was arbitrary. And this was not on the basis of some even uh, intermediate scrutiny, some higher scrutiny, just on the basis of rational scrutiny, that it was arbitrary to say that women, just because they were women and had, you know, they were in the class of those who potentially could be mothers, could not administer an estate for their child who predeceased them, or that women couldn't be lawyers because they were part of this class, right? There's nothing about being a mother that should keep one from being a lawyer, a lawyer that that is with regard to, to their, their function and reproduction, right? And so that's why I think what anti-discrimination gets really right. What it gets wrong is, as you say, exactly as you say, is taking kind of the platonic insight all the way down. And what I bring up in the in the article is the way in which anti-discrimination law, and this is Ginsburg doing this really from the outset, but other scholars too. And this is a very popular argument that's being made in state courts now in our post-Roe era across you know, the nation or in the red states, you know, where where the litigation is happening, that that it's, you know, discriminating on the basis of sex. It's discriminating against women to have a prohibition against abortion. And so what they're trying to say is that you know, in order to be equal, just as Plato conceived it, women have to have the capacity to walk away from a pregnancy just as men do. And so they're discounting entirely, almost blind, being blind to the fact that women and men are, are different with regard to the capacity for, for childbearing. And I guess the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you get a word in here, is that 
what a prohibition or a restriction on abortion is implicitly saying is that women, when they're pregnant, pregnant women, have an affirmative duty of care for the child that is developing in their womb, and they don't have the, the right to end the child's life. And this is very similar to what we say to fathers, that fathers, you know, who have, who's, you know, who have, you know, sired a child do not have the right to end that child's life because, you know, that is the fatherhood is now a burden, you know, a burden on them. And so you have, so, you know, if you want to try to make an equality claim, you have to do it on the basis of what these two are equal you know, with regard to, and that is with regard to their responsibilities to the child. Again, far more burdensome to women. But the answer, in my view, is not to say that women can do something that fathers cannot, that mothers can do something that fathers cannot, but instead say that fathers ought to do their part, right, in being responsible for the children that they have brought about. Yeah. So your idea then with anti-discrimination is it has to, uh, it has to track the the biological realities of the fact that the procreative act is that, precisely that. Sexual intercourse is a procreative act, and it has consequent, differential consequences for men and women. But it's not like it has no consequences for men. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, but, we can culturally decide that, right? We can culturally decide that. And in some cases, I think we sort of have, in a way, tried to sort of, you know, ape the kind of worst kind of man who irresponsibly walks away from from pregnancy, right? I mean, that's what we've tried to do with contraception abortion. And and I think we've really gotten that very, very wrong in sort of saying women should be able to imitate the worst kind of man instead of saying, hold on, <laughs> everybody has these really sort of, you know, the they're encumbered by the, you know, act of sex because sex potentially creates a new human being to whom both mother and father are responsible. And so just as women are biologically encumbered right away, before they even know their bodies are nourishing a new child, right? So it really takes, you know, more cultural and legal and political kind of weight, right, to, and heft and push to say men have to be burdened and really privileged by that responsibility too through fatherhood, through engaged fatherhood. Well, Mary Harrington refers to the progressivism, cultural progressivism, not just feminism, uh, is wages a war on relationships, which I guess is a, another way of talking about, because our, it's our embodied vulnerability that draws us in, makes the relationships burdensome. You know, you, my spouse falls ill, you know, pregnancy, child, elderly parents, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all, our relationships make us vulnerable, just, uh, just as our bodies make us vulnerable. And it seems like we live in a time when all of the energy tries to go into making us like Greek gods who, who's, who are invulnerable. They don't have to deal with uh, suffering and death as, as we human beings do. Yes, that's right. As my, as my great mentor, Marianne Glendon, always, almost every time I see her, she reminds me, we just had an event recently at Boston College together. And as she reminds me, and I've you know brought up in my own writing too, is is that, you know, as Aristotle said, the only one who isn't dependent is either God or a beast, right? Who sort of makes himself independent of all others as either God or a beast. And so, you know, we think we're gods potentially, but it seems to me that we're more, (laughs) 
we're more likely beasts, yeah, in this age, right? Unable to attain godlike status, we can, unable to become greater than human, we become less than human. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. I think that's absolutely right. Do you have a, I mean, do you, do you see in the current lay of the land in terms of law with respect to discrimination on the basis of sex, do you see an area where you could see like an immediate place where you could like to see a positive change? I mean, I think the most obvious is really the one I've laid out, that I think the courts have to be really clear. And and we're actually seeing some of this, lower court judges, where they're saying, look, this isn't an equal protection issue. And equal protection is really, it's like all these pro-choice academics want to go in that direction. So you'll even see judges who say this isn't equal protection, this isn't sex discrimination, but they really like, you know, liberty or privacy in terms of autonomy, you know, so we're back at those kind of arguments which are also really, you know, bad philosophically. But I think you have seen that this, that if they dig down deep enough, that they are, tr- they see that there's really not that kind of equality issue here. So I think we can kind of stop and really have, if we could see state judges just, you know, like Dobbs did in a very short paragraph, which I think could have been much more robust, but sort of saying, look, these equal protection claims really have no basis in law. They're just bad law and they're bad philosophy. Then I think that would be a great place to start to push back. And then, you know, really, I mean, you could start to see where single sex spaces, I think is another place where it's really important to see, you know, that greater male strength, male, you know, maturity through testosterone is, is a day, it can be a danger, you know, to women, whether it's in prisons or on the athletic field or whatever. So those kinds of places I think would be, would be really important to have this sort of sex realism kind of permeate anti-discrimination law more thoroughly. But again, with this good nuance that, yes, women should, you know, be afforded those equal opportunities to engage in sport and all that, but that they but that they ought to be able to do so um, without, you know, having their skulls crushed or something like that by great, by great, by superior masculine strength. You know? So your, your intuition is that as a society, we've made great progress with respect to the platonic notion of equality. But we need to recover this Aristotelian, as you call it, sex realist understanding of the equality of men and women, that we're, we're not the same. Okay. So I want to say, I don't know that we've made great progress on the platonic understanding because I don't know that we really see, see that our highest equality or nobility comes in excellences of soul. So I think that there's a way in which we have what I, what we've sort of, Oh, it's we kind have of a, this it's a deficit. Deba- it's a debased, uh, it's like whoever has yeah. the most money or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's more like, <laughs> I think that's exactly right. It's more like what I call market equality. Uh, so it's kind of like who engages in kind of the most work or has the most prestige or went to the best school or drives the fastest car or has, you know, has. So I think that the equality is still quite debased and isn't even as, you know, the kind of, ver- like the kind of stuff that I talk about, Christine de Pizan, and to, you know, a lesser extent as explicitly, but still there with, with Mary Wilsoncraft is just like the excellences of soul in terms of virtue. Like that's where you're going to see it's not distinguishes shouldn't distinct distinction should be made so much or equality grasps so much on questions of kind of sex or race or, you know, money or any of these things, but really should be about virtue. Like the, you know, the more virtuous person should be have, have the, you know, more sort of cultural esteem, prestige, nobility, all that. I mean, that's a harder thing to judge, but we have done that in prior times, right? I mean, I think civilizations were in some sense built around that. And, you know, that's certainly the kind of thing parenting that I do is by extolling those kinds of 
and, and noticing in my own children and others those kind of greatnesses of soul rather than these other superficial ones, you know. Well, let's hope for a recovery of honor accorded to virtue rather than honor accorded to, as you said, celebrity. I think it's um, wealth and celebrity. Those are the two currencies in our time that I think have gained the upper hand. So I hope I hope we succeed. I hope the true Plato and the true the best of Plato and the best of Aristotle are in our future. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, and thanks for this great article. Thanks so much, Rusty. 